Good morning. If I don't know you, my name is Rick Martinez. I am one of the elders here. And if you couldn't tell, today our theme is joy. We are going to be teaching the next four weeks on uh, four different aspects of what this Advent season <coughs> represents and speaks to. And we will be talking about uh, the qualities of the Christian life as they relate to this time of the year. Joy, peace, love, and hope. Four really important and powerful qualities of the Christian experience. And we have to define them, don't we? We have to understand them uh, beyond what the world defines them and understands them to be. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. I'm going to read from that to begin. Just as real quick, by way of instruction, the word Advent is derived from a Latin word, Adventus, makes sense, which means coming. And it is a translation of the Greek word perusia, which also obviously means coming or presence or appearing. And we know, we've come to understand that the Advent season symbolizes the, and this is kind of how I'm wired, how I think, and I know many of you are as well, it symbolizes the present situation of the church in these last days in which we are living as God's people as we wait for the return of Christ. When he will return in glory to consummate, to bring to a fulfillment, his kingdom. And so it's very biblical to understand that the church is in a very similar situation as was the nation of Israel at the end of the Old Testament when they lived in exile. They were waiting and hoping, and they were prayerful, and they lived in prayerful expectation of the coming of the Messiah, looking back to God's deliverance, God's past very gracious actions, on their behalf as he led them out of Egypt during the Exodus. And they were looking forward to act, to God acting once again for them. In the same way, we, the church, look back joyfully to the cross, to the coming of Christ in his first coming, to the work of the cross. We look back with thankfulness, with celebration, and we look forward in eager anticipation of the second coming when the kingdom of God will come amazingly in all its fullness. So we live in between two advents, two comings of God, two comings of Christ. We live in, in between two, both the, the fulfilled and the unfulfilled promises of God. Karl Barth said this, unfulfilled and fulfilled promise are related to each other in Christ. As our dawn and sunrise, both promise and, in fact, are the same promise. They both have a promise, and they are, in fact, the same promise. So we live in between the fulfilled and the unfulfilled promises of Christ. The promise for Israel and the promise for the church is Jesus Christ. He has come, and he will come again. John 15, if you would look there with me, please.
verse 9. Amazing words, the words of the Lord Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his, his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. That my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Father, we thank you this morning for this wonderful quality, this great, deep, profound truth of the Christian life. Help us to understand it, Lord, as it is defined in God, not just by you, but in you. Help us to know, Lord, today what is true, that we can take hold of these things, and that they will not just be concepts in our minds, but they would become realities in our heart. They would become truth to us as we live our lives in this world, as we live our lives in exile as the church on the earth today. Lord, we're grateful for the deliverance that's come already, but we look forward to the completion of what you have begun on that day that you return. So help this season as we gather as a church, Lord, Capital City Church, help this season to be one of great joy, one of great thankfulness, one of great celebration, one of, of, of a great sense, Lord, that you are with us. Emmanuel, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Joy, peace, love, hope are our subjects this Advent season, and in that order. And I said a moment ago, they are four qualities that I think maybe most powerfully and most clearly characterize the Christian life. They are barometers in a very real sense of the vibrancy and robustness and in one way probably the, the genuineness of our faith. In fact, the New Testament implies again and again that if these four qualities are not present in our lives, there is a reason to question, at some level, the genuineness of our faith. That's how important they are. That because we live in a fallen world and because there is an enemy of our souls, they can at times be diminished or hindered. We're not able to fully even maybe understand them or take hold of them, and we cannot express them, therefore, fully in and through our lives. But we're taught in the New Testament these four qualities are all byproducts of faith and they are all the fruit of the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives. And as I was praying about the subject this morning, as I was knowing that I'm teaching on joy, I obviously have been thinking a lot about it for the last few days and even the last couple of weeks, thinking about joy and really realizing I feel like I've come to a sense, a conclusion that of all of the four qualities, and maybe it's because I'm teaching this one, this might be the most difficult one to lay hold of at times. And it may be the key to the others. It's very sovereign, I think, providential that we're looking at it first as we look at all four of them. I think we have a very clear understanding of what peace, and I know the guys that are going to teach after me will do an excellent job teaching on peace and love and on hope. 
Joy might be the one that's the most difficult to apprehend, to comprehend. And I appreciated what Annie brought today as she just spoke that exhortation to choose joy. Because as I looked this week at, the, at studying it and thinking about it, I found that the old, in, in, the, in the early church, there was actually the way they greeted one another was simply with the word rejoice. When they saw one another, they didn't say, hey, how you doing, dude? They didn't say that. They didn't go, what's up? When they saw one another, they said, rejoice. It was a, it was a, a commandment, in a sense, an imperative. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians chapter 3, rejoice always as an imperative. It was not a question of whether or not they could or they should. He said, rejoice always, pray unceasingly, always giving thanks. That was an attitude of the heart that they expected and that they assumed and that, in a sense, Paul as a leader and, and Jesus himself commanded them to take hold of and to have in their hearts. In other words, I want to begin by saying this morning, joy is not an option for a Christian. And though it is hard to apprehend, we must apprehend it. We must begin by understanding it. Because if there is one great whole, one glaring lack in men's hearts today in the world in which we live. It is out of the lack of joy. And sadly, I think even too often, that's the case for those who are followers of Christ. Who are weighed down, who are heavy, who are somber, who are grumpy, who are bitter, who are frustrated, who are anxious, who are fearful. All of those qualities we can easily have come upon us, discouraged, and they all will steal, or they try to. Listen, but I'm going to explain in a moment, nothing can ultimately steal it. Joy. But it feels fleeting. It feels elusive. It feels at times that it's short-lived, and it should not be so. So we live in between Luke 2 the angels coming and saying, I bring you good tidings of joy. And Jude 24, verse 24, where Jude writes that he is able to make you stand in his presence in that day with great joy, blameless. We live in between Luke 2 and Jude verse 24. We live now in the here and now, but we are to live now as believers with one of the most important qualities that we will ever be able to express to a world that is desperate to know the truth, and that is how to live with true joy. Listen to the words of Jesus again that I wrote a moment ago. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then he said this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus is speaking to his disciples very shortly before he died. And he promises that his joy will be in their lives. It will fill their lives. And the word in the Greek means filled, to the brim, overflowing. 
nothing wanting. And I had a question in my mind this week, does that describe my joy? And I would ask you the same question, does that describe your joy? Is it full to the brim? So that regarding the quality of life that you are living, you are wanting for nothing in the sense of joy. Is my life, is your life characterized by joy? Would others say that you are a joyful person? And I'm not talking about personality. I'm not talking about what kind of uh, person you are in the morning. It has nothing to do with how you were born with your temperament. We're talking about something that is deeper and much more profound and much more important than simply the personality that we have. Because some people are outgoing, some people are, are, are bubbly, some people are friendly, others are quiet and somber and withdrawn perhaps in their personality. But all of us are called to live as believers with great joy. Psalm 1611, let me read it to you. You don't need to turn to it. You will make known to me the path of life, he wrote. He said, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. You have made known to me the path of life. We're getting now to the definition of what joy is. In your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Just as Jesus spoke of having joy that was full, the psalmist spoke of fullness of joy. And he equates that joy with a pleasure that is eternal, a pleasure that is forever. But how, how do you, we ask, how do I live with joy? How do I live with joy? How do I live with fullness of joy? How do I live with joy that's full to the brim? Very simply, the ground of our rejoicing, and this is the whole essence of what I'm saying today, is the finished work of God. The finished work of God the Father, the finished work of God the Son, and the finished work of God the Holy Spirit. It is the finished work of the triune God. God the Father being the source, Christ Jesus being the mediator, and the Holy Spirit being the one who works it into us. It is his energy, it is his life within us whom the Father is the source of and Christ the mediator of, the finished work of God, the redemptive work of God. That is the ground of joy for the Christian. And it is the commitment of God, the commitment of this triune God to us in promises that are both past, present, and future. Joy to the world, what? The Lord has come. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. The psalmist seems to imply that the path of life that is, it, that this path of life that brings joy is Godward and it is God ordained. And it leads, therefore, to fullness of joy in this life and ultimately to pleasure forever. The path of life that leads to fullness of joy is Godward and God-ordained. Because as we know, and we've talked about this, and you've all heard this said many times, true joy, true joy is much deeper, 
much more profound, and it is altogether, listen, a different substance than the happiness the world offers us. It's not the same substance. It's not made of the same thing. It's different because it's not dependent on life's circumstances. It's not dependent on happenstance. And circumstances and happenstances and their ever-changing resultant emotions. Joy is not based upon ever-changing emotions. As I was thinking and praying about it this week, I was thinking, you know, I asked myself, is there joy for men in this world outside of Christ? And I believe there is, but I don't believe it is the same joy that Jesus spoke of in John 15 either, nor is it the same joy of Psalm 16. But I think we would all have to admit there is, there is joy in this life for people who are not Christians. And the reason is, is because we live under common grace. All men live in a beautiful world created by God with the blessing of life. There's joy in childbirth. There's joy in a marriage. There's joy in friendships. There's joy in, in a meal with family. There's joy in experiences that we have as human beings that all men have and all men share. But let's be honest to say and agree that those experiences aren't lasting. Those experiences come and then they go. And so the joy does not last. That's not the joy that Jesus spoke of, nor is it the joy that the angels proclaimed when he said joy to the world. Because the joy of the world is connected to the impulse of the heart. It's connected to the need to have pleasure fulfilled. It's very deluding because it promises something that it can never deliver. It can't deliver an abiding, lasting joy. The world cannot give abiding, lasting joy. No matter how much wealth, no matter what kind of health, no matter whatever else we have, an abundance of, perhaps, even in this world, it will not ever last, and it will not give lasting joy. And it can never satisfy because it's rooted in the lust of the eyes, ultimately, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. It's what drives men. In their desire. It originates in the longings or desires of the fallen nature because earthly desire can never be satisfied. If I just had that car, I drove my sister's Tesla two weeks ago, and I really liked it. <laughs> and I came home and I told Kath, I'd love to get it. I don't have the money to do it. And then I would, I would not do it just because it would look like I had money that I don't have. <laughs> but man, I would love to have that car. I'd love to have that house. 
I'd love to get that degree. I'd love to marry that guy. I'd love to marry that woman. Because then if I did, if I could, if I had it, I would be satisfied. I would be happy. I would have joy. Joy like this? No. You would not. But those things never really ultimately can lead to that. Because they come from the very essence of the human condition in a fallen, the human nature in a fallen condition. And that is to desire and desire and desire and desire and never to be ultimately or finally or permanently satisfied. We're talking about something that is of a different substance, something that is of a different nature, something that is not able to be somehow in any way produced, manufactured, or gained through what the world can offer. The joy of John 15 and the joy of Psalm 16 are not the same substance as that which the world desires or experiences. It is a different substance altogether. The joy we are speaking of is Godward and God-ordained, a life that is Godward and God-ordained. In other words, the joy that we're speaking of, listen, listen, is otherworldly. And it is this very thing, the fact that it is otherworldly, it is the otherworldliness that makes joy so elusive in this life. For believers, and what makes it impossible for non-believers to know, because it's otherworldly. Because as is true of all the other realities of the Christian life, true joy is tied to knowing Jesus Christ. True joy in this life is found for a man or a woman who is on the path of life as determined by God in Christ. True joy in this life for a man or a woman is on the path of life as determined by God in Christ. Are you on the path of life that is determined by God in Christ? Is your life Godward? Is the path that you are on God-ordained? If it is on that path, there is fullness of joy. If not, the joy that you have and that you experience will be short-lived. It will come and it will go based on your circumstances. Let's talk just for a few moments about some of the qualities of this life, of this joy. The first thing that I want to say to you, this is amazing too. This blew me out as I began to think about it. That this life of joy is enhanced and enriched, listen, through trials. So now we're really talking otherworldly. James 1, 2, I'm going to read some text to you. You can write them down, look them up on your own. James 1, 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Because you know the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. I, this might be, I, I, this, I, this week I sat and I read this, and I've, I'm going to say this might be one of the most beautiful 
statements that I could ever read in the New Testament written by Paul. 2 Corinthians 6, 8 through 10. Listen. Talking about being a servant of God, being a servant of Christ, he wrote this. We are treated as imposters and yet are true. As unknown and yet well-known. As dying and behold, we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. The powerful, beautiful words of Paul describing the paradox of the Christian life. The poignancy of the deep and the profound reality of living in Christ in a fallen world. And one of the, one of the main points is that he lived as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Isn't that a contradiction? In the eyes of the world, absolutely. In the eyes of God, absolutely not. Because those two things have nothing to do with one another, in one sense. And yet, in another sense, they have everything to do with one another because the sorrow, in a a very great sense, enhances the reality of true joy. Because in comparison to what the world could bring, in comparison to what man might do, in comparison to whatever the cost is that I've had to pay, the joy that is in knowing Christ and being in Christ and being called a son of God or a daughter of God far surpasses it. There's no comparison in Paul's mind. First Peter 1, Peter writes this. He says, in this you, re- you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You're rejoicing in the midst of your trials, Peter says. Why? So that the genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, because joy has its eyes on something that is eternal. Joy is rooted in what is true, what is already finished, and it's looking forward to what is eternal and what will be eternally mine. It's otherworldly. It's a different substance than happiness. It's not even of the same nature. And of course, Hebrews 12.2, powerful scripture speaking of Jesus himself, who for the joy set before him, what? Finish it. Endured the cross and despised its shame. Who for what reason? For the joy. For the joy that was set before him. What was Jesus' joy grounded and rooted in? Listen, Jesus' joy was grounded and rooted in the hope and in the reality and in the confidence of you and I being his own cross was worth it because he had a sight set on something eternal. Is, are your eyes set on what is eternally true or are your eyes set on what is before you only in the world? What governs your day-to-day existence? 
is the question we must ask ourselves. This is the reason it's so difficult for so many believers, even many who turn away from God, who when trials come, when trials come that, that they're not able to bear, they turn and they turn away from God because they're living by their emotion and by their feelings rather than out of the truth of what is already finished, what is eternally theirs in Christ. Brothers and sisters, to live by your emotions is a prison that will rob you of true joy. To live by your emotions is a prison that will rob you of true joy. But as you grow in the Lord, as you mature in the Lord, you will come to understand that your life is not controlled by feeling or emotions only. Because my emotions are now controlled by the truth. And they serve, listen, my understanding. Did you hear that? My emotions serve my understanding rather than the other way around. Rather than dictating my understanding, rather than affecting my understanding, rather than impacting my understanding, my feelings serve my understanding because my understanding is rooted and grounded in the truth. And so I really believe and hear my heart in this. It's not acceptable to say to God, I'm sorry, God, I would like to rejoice, but I can't control my feelings. It's never acceptable for a believer to say that to God. That is a spiritual problem. Because it says you don't know enough about your God to rejoice in spite of your circumstances. You are still a babe, you are still immature. You are still living as an unbeliever. When your emotions and when your feelings govern your life. Kath and I talk about these kinds of things. We don't talk specifically about this, but we talk about the fact that we, we know who we are. We know what grounds us. We've, we know where our existence is. We know what our hope is. We, we've learned to find joy in our lives, in all of our circumstances. And I'm not saying that we do that perfectly. I'm not pretending in that any way. But we know who God is and we know who we are. And if you are living by emotion, you're being robbed of your joy. You're living in a prison. If you're living by feelings by what happens in the world around you day to day in the news, of what the world might bring to your life, what might touch your life, be it good or bad. If you're living by that and that's dictating your feeling and your understanding of life, you're living in a prison that God wants you to be free of. Joy to the world. Say it. And the response is, The Lord has come. My joy is also anchored in the character of God. It's anchored in who he is. And it's my understanding of the character and the nature of God that does anchor my life. God is too wise, I know, to ever make a mistake. God is 
too loving to ever be unkind to me. God is too gracious to never forgive me, not to forgive me. God is too merciful to allow me to be without hope. God is my protector. God is more powerful than Satan. Let me say this to you who have been raised in certain types of churches. Satan is not sovereign. He only can do what he can do because God allows him to do it. I'm going to tell you, I didn't always believe that. I almost thought they were equal at times. I thought I was, somehow I was subject to to the enemy's whims and will and attacks on my life or on my family. The uncertainty of what Satan might do to me. Satan isn't sovereign. He's a created being who only exists because God has allowed him to for his eternal purposes in Christ to bring glory to his name. God is more powerful than demons. God rules all circumstances. And I belong to that God. He is my God. My, my life is anchored in the, na- in the character and the nature of God. And brothers and sisters, that gives me joy. That is joy to me. There's so many Christians who struggle with joy because they don't understand who God truly is. And that grieves me. Does God really love me? Will God really forgive me? Does God really know what I'm going through? Does God really care? I mean, we've all asked that in our weakness at times, let's be honest. But some people live that way. They live with shame and condemnation and guilt and fear and anxiousness. And I say to you, because they do not know the God whom they serve as revealed in his word, and it steals their joy. What motivated Paul and what motivated the writers of the New Testament to be joyful in all things was their understanding of God and his sovereign love and his infinite wisdom and grace and his providential care for their lives. The truth of divine providence is a very powerful doctrine and a powerful truth. And when it is rightly understood, it will always result in rejoicing. Let me define it for you. The doctrine of providence simply means that God takes all of the events and all of the actions of all of the people in the world for all time, and he moves them with a measure by himself of self-determination and freedom And he weaves them together to accomplish perfectly his sovereign and eternal plan in Christ. Wrap your mind around that. That is mind-boggling. There's a theology that kind of became prominent in the 90s. It's called open theism. I hope most of you haven't heard of it. It's a theology that ultimately does not believe in the sovereignty of God. It teaches basically this, that God's decisions are influenced by human attitudes and then 
the responses of human beings. In other words, God doesn't know what we're going to do until we do it. That's what it teaches. And it's very popular today. You would be surprised. Because people struggle with the whole issue of, of man's will and God's sovereignty. And it's much easier for people to just come to a conclusion. And it's much more profound and deep than I'm making it out to be. I'm simplifying it ridiculously. But essentially, what God is up there watching like he's watching a movie and he's waiting to see what we're going to do so that he can come and then sort it all out for us after the fact. And I want to say to you, if I believed that was true, I would be living in constant fear. Because I don't know what I'm going to do. And I would go buy a Tesla. You know, I, I, the Holy Spirit over here won't let me. She just went like this when I told her, I want to, I want to I live with Tesla. <laughs> Maybe someday when I'm 85 or 90 or something. Oh, yikes, that scares her. I'll just tell you, they're really cool. My life is, my life gets complicated with just a few variables. It does. And I can't imagine God in his incredible brilliance, in his providence, ordering all things according to his will. Because he loves me, bringing all things together for my good. Because I am called according to his purposes, and I love him. And I'll tell you, that gives me great joy. God is in control of my life. I'm not a puppet. I'm not a puppet on a string. I'm not saying that. I choose, but my will has been given to God. My will is Godward. My will is Godward. And so I have peace and I have hope because I know who I am and it results in great joy. And so we have come to understand that, that this joy is to be ours. And just as Annie said to us this morning, choose it. And I want to say to you again, there is nothing in this world that should ever be able to rob you of your joy because joy is otherworldly. There's nothing in this world that should ever be able to steal your joy because it didn't originate in this world. It originates in the heart and the mind of God. It's, it's in the character and the nature of God, and it's tied inseparably to what is already true, what is already finished, and what is eternally true yet to come. Are you, are you hearing this? It is not an emotion. It, is, it results in emotion. It can, but it doesn't have to. It's not a feeling that comes and grows. It's a deep, abiding knowing of what's true that impacts the way I understand life and the way that I choose to relate to life because of what I understand to be true. Do we need to remind each other of this? Yes. Which is probably why the early church, when they greeted one another, said to one another, rejoice. Because it was just simply a reminder 
Remember who you are. Remember who he is to you. Remember what he has done. Remember that you are more than an overcomer. All of the things that scripture speaks of and teaches. Jesus said our joy can and our joy should be full. And it's full because Jesus has spoken to me. He has spoken to me of his love for me. And it's the same love the Father has for him. He has shown me his love through his amazing, redemptive, sacrificial act on Calvary. He has taught me how to live as he lived in this world, as he walked on a path of life, in obedience to his Father's will. And he promised me that if I would do that as well, his love would abide in me. And then my joy would be full. And then he sent his Spirit to indwell me. And by the life of that Spirit and the power of that Spirit and the energy of that Spirit, I have the grace to cling to God because I'm sealed by that Spirit through whatever life might bring me. This is a joy that cannot be manufactured. It cannot be gained by anything the world offers. It can't be bought. It can't be produced because it has a different source and a different origin. This is the joy of the Bible. This is true joy. And it is discovered on the path, the path of life that is Godward and God-ordained, a path that is a path of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Joy to the world, brothers and sisters. Yes, he has. Amen. Can I just say, if you're not a believer today here, please know my words are true. I would not lie to you. I'm speaking truth to you. And I'm praying for you and hoping that you will know that what your heart longs for can only be found in Christ. I'm not saying the world does not offer things that are fun, things that bring temporary joy, a kind of joy and a happiness. Yes, it does. But I'm telling you today, and I know you heard me say this, and I know you understand what I'm saying to you, and I'm saying this to you today with my whole heart and truth and in love, that the joy that the world offers will never satisfy deep down what your heart longs for because it's otherworldly and it comes through knowing Christ. Open your eyes spiritually. Open your heart today to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him and you will be saved. Believe on him and you will be saved. Your sin will be forgiven. You will be called a son of God and you will live evermore. What a a wonderful gift. Amen? Stand with me, please. Could I have the musicians come back up, please? Okay, now I want to hear the response. Joy to the world. Amen. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice always. Man, when I was a baby Christian, 
I went to a retreat, and uh, I was raised in the Catholic Church. I think we've told you this before. I got saved, and I went back to the Catholic Church because that's all we knew, Kath and I. And we went on a retreat when we were young Christians, and it was a Catholic retreat. And the priest, who was, quote, unquote, a spirit-filled priest, taught the whole weekend at this retreat. And he, one day, finally, the last day of the, of the retreat, he decided to have question and answers. Mistake. <laughs> because my hand went up immediately based on something that he had just got through teaching, and he taught on purgatory. And I raised my hand, and I'm a baby, baby, baby Christian. I said, wait a minute, I said, politely. I said, are you telling me that if I stole a nickel and walked out on the street and got hit by a car, I would not be with the Lord? And he said, yes. And I went, uh, no. And I went back to my room, and I started reading Hebrews and reading and reading and reading. Told, told Kath, I, I said, babe, I said, this is not true stuff. This is all a lie. And she was like, get behind me, Satan. And I went back out a little later, and an old lady came behind me, and she put her arm around me, and she whispered in my ear, and she goes, she said to me, what you're hearing from God is right. And then she said this. She said, you have the world by its tail. She said, go for it. And I've never forgotten that. And I'll say that to all of us today. We have the world by the tail because of who we are. We are victors in Christ. Don't ever let that be stolen from you for a second, the joy and the reality of who you are. Don't let shame ever be on you. Don't let condemnation ever be on you. Don't let guilt ever rest on you. Don't accept fear. There's nothing to fear. Don't live anxiously. He knows your needs, and he loves you. And whatever may come in this world, in this life, know that God is in control and know that he's working it for, his, for your good, for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.